When do you coach one-on-one? And what's so wrong with Gantt charts anyway? That's this week on the Badass Agile Podcast. Greetings, team. Welcome to the Badass Agile Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Williams. Greetings, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Badass Answers. Thank you for sending in your questions. Don't forget, you can go to contact at badassagile.com. Ask me any question you like. You can also go to badassagile.com, and you'll find the question form right there on the homepage. Well, listen, this first question comes to us from Greg. This question is, when you're coaching teams, should you have one-on-ones with the individuals? And when could having that one-on-one impact the notion of self-organizing teams, and potentially create a silo? That's a great question. Here's what I want you to remember, that team coaching is about coaching performance in the room. So as you're sitting there watching and working with a team, you're interested in how they interact, how they operate. So what processes do they govern themselves with? How do they distinguish roles and accountabilities? How does information and work move from person to person through the team? How do people collaborate? How do they help each other? How do they hurt each other? And is there anything that you can do to make that flow more efficient? That's primarily what you're doing in the room. So individual coaching has a different aim. So I always do it for executives and individual agile leaders. It's somewhat mandatory because a couple of reasons. One, some conversations, uh, they might need to be private. So especially if somebody else has feedback and it's not comfortable to share it, Sometimes a coach can enable that conversation in a more friendly and less threatening way. Also keep in mind that as you get more experienced as a coach, certain coaching conversations will start to brush up against the root of interpersonal or performance issues, things like a person's fears or a person's attitudes or beliefs. Those things may be better discussed in private. Also, coaching sessions, in order to be effective, should be brief. People are busy, number one. Number two, you want to be impactful, right? So fewer words, less rambling, and more real sauce, like more real impact. Not to mention the fact that whatever I build for a person is an individual coaching plan. Put another way, what works for you won't work for the next person to wander into the room. So if you try to coach everyone all at the same time, you're going to disable all those benefits. It's going to be really hard to control the the conversation and the duration of it, People are going to go off on tangents, not to mention a coaching plan that I have specifically for one person. If the rest of the team hears it, tries to apply it, and it doesn't work, then things become frustrating, people lose faith, and we've kind of blown up our own best efforts. So here are some cultural sensitivity is really going to help you. If you feel like leaders, especially in the room, are going to be okay with you singling them out and saying, see that thing that you did right there? Here's an area where I need you to change your mindset or your behavior for the benefit of the whole team. That works really well if we're talking about, for example, a product owner to a team. So if you're running backlog grooming sessions and the product owner's present, but they're shutting down other people's ideas, it's really easy to coach and say, hey, listen, Mr. and Mrs. Product Owner, the best way to run a grooming session, in my experience, is when feedback comes up from the rest of the room, we allow it, we process it, and then we move on whatever your coaching happens to be. But even hearing that, you might have an appreciation for the fact that some people are not going to be open 
to that kind of publicity around your comments and your feedback. So here, the one-on-one conversation becomes more effective. Now, to answer your question, does this disrupt or disable self-organizing teams? And does it create silos? So I believe that it doesn't because I still think that the team coaching aspect is there. You always have the opportunity to do coaching in the room on an incident basis as you see things happening. Or I used to, and I still do, start teams off or pop up a little bit of training when I think the team needs it. So when the team is ready and we need to start doing, for example, definition of ready, then I'll teach them how to do definition of ready right there in the room. And I'll watch them as they build it and I'll coach them on the results. So there's lots of opportunity in those team coaching sessions to discuss whatever topics you want to discuss, whatever you think will help the team, whether those improvements are individual improvements or group improvements. But being able to keep the conversations that need to be private or are more efficient when they're private in a private setting, I don't think that creates a silo. Now, if you're asking, should I coach everybody on a team individually? I'm not sure that's effective or efficient. The way I do it is I always offer up, if anybody wants individual coaching to help you get better at your agile game or whether it's just career questions you might want to ask or have answered, then by all means, bring it. I'll make time for you. And when I say I make time, I limit coaching sessions one-on-one to about 15 minutes. And I tend to only do them once every two weeks because I will often assign homework. And usually with busy people, five business days is not enough time to really take on that homework seriously. So it's only mandatory for executives and agile leaders or anyone who's responsible for inspiring or affecting agile change in the organization, but it is optional and available to anybody else who might want it. So again, to your question, does that create silos? I don't think it creates silos so much as it does flag the people who are truly looking to get better. Look, you can't force coaching on everybody. There will be some people in the room who at the outset don't want to play ball, are not interested in getting better, they're stonewalling for a whole bunch of different reasons, and that's something that you have to solve over time. But when you offer up your individual coaching for people who feel inspired to take it, you have an opportunity in the here and now to help those people. I frequently say that the reason why we have a 2% is because those 2% are willing to do what 98% of the population are not willing to do. And one of those things is commit to coaching and external feedback. So if you meet people who want it, I say give it to them. So if you're wondering if that creates clicks or if it creates, you know, some weird associations, look, if you sit with the wrong people at lunch, you can create clicks that way too. So I suppose if you don't do this with sensitivity, if you don't keep certain things private and certain things confidential while sharing anything that could benefit the whole tribe, you can certainly, I suppose you could cause a little bit of damage, but you know what? You're a coach for a reason. You probably have that kind of thing down already, I'm hoping. But if you have more questions, feel free to ask another one. So Greg, thank you for that. That's a really great question. Next question comes from Carl. And Carl wants to know, why can't I use a Gantt chart to track the many dependencies in hardware design or prototype development? Well, Carl, you've probably answered your own question. Just by the, the way you've written it, sounds like you kind of want to use Gantt charts. And that's fine. There's no, you can do whatever you want. There's nothing wrong with Gantt charts, though. Gantt charts are excellent, excellent, unparalleled for plotting sequences and dependent chains of activity. But you don't want to use a Gantt chart to plot things that change very frequently. Why? Because it's nearly impossible to plan chaos 
And even if you could do it well, it's a lot of work to replant it when it eventually changes, which it does frequently. So the argument then is not whether Gantt charts are good or bad, but whether or not the things that you're trying to describe with a Gantt chart are chaotic. So here's a rule for you. If you have mostly dependable, repeatable processes that are informed by years of refinement and experience, then you have what we call a mature process, and it can be mapped out easily, and it's possible that a Gantt chart is the best way to do that. See, there's a reason why Gantt charts achieved so much popularity in our industry, because for the early ages of industry, especially manufacturing, repeatable processes were necessary, and they had to be documented well so that you could train other people on them and repeat them. That's the earliest form of automation that we're familiar with. So Gantt charts certainly have their place. But now, where creativity and autonomy are not only desirable, but they're part of our daily processes more and more frequently, then things are unpredictable more commonly. And it's the unpredictability that Gantt charts are not so effective at helping us document. So for the things that you propose, like hardware design and prototype development, you probably have a very secure, repeatable, predictable process. Gantt charts are great for those. So by all means, if they help you, use them. So thank you, Carl, for that question. I really appreciate it. And it, it probably helps demystify for a lot of people. You know, there's so much tension between the old and the new. Gantt chart versus something else. Well, it's not a battle. It's not a fight. It's about choosing the right tool for the job. Agile, likewise, you've heard it said many times, is not a magic bullet. If all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Well, so it is for Agile too. It's just a tool in the toolbox. And what you want is a robust and varied set of tools so that you can solve any problem for your clients and customers. Folks, thank you for listening. You can reach out at badassagile.com or find me on Twitter at badass underscore agile. And don't forget to send your questions in to contact at badassagile.com. I look forward to answering them in an upcoming episode. Until then, stay badass. Badass.